calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I am your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. Today's story is Infinite Love Engine by Joseph Allen Hill, narrated by Stefan Rudnicki. This story is copyright 2017. Joseph Allen Hill is a Chicago-based writer and bon vivant. He has also spent time in Georgia and New Jersey. He has a marginally useful degree in classics and enjoys making music in his spare time. He can be reached on Twitter at Joe Hill of Earth 2 That's the numeral 2 at the end. So, it's time to buckle up. We're going to light speed. Infinite Love Engine by Joseph Allen Hill. Beeblax beats its wings against the superlumic slurry of time and space, and the universe turns to liquid starlight in its periphery. Inside rides Arya Astra, stellar champion of the star supremacy, wielder of the sister ray, space-trotting cool gal, and humanity's last hope. Nestled within a blob of translucent pink jelly meat, and it is totally cool, and only a little disgusting. This jelly is bee blacks, or at least the material bee blacks that Arya's senses can perceive, or at least the phenomenon of bee blacks that exists in the moment of Arya's perception. And Arya perceives an infinity of bee blacks all around her a measureless swarm only slightly obscured by jelly and motion, and within each one is a different iteration of herself. Every aria that has or would ever travel with B-Blacks in every possible universe, all shooting through the same hyperstream along a single chain of moments, like motes of dust dancing on a sunbeam. Aria takes a long, sweet snort of it-them, the taste evokes a memory of roses in their platonic ideal, and she enjoys the anagogic tingle of bee-blacksness in her lungs. There is a little piece of her that is afraid, the horny, angry, frightened pig-baby that skulks in the limbic sewer at the bottom of the brain. You're drowning in slime, babe, it says, and gauge complete autonomic freakout. But Arya is like, nah, pig, this is chill. Don't fuck this up for me. And she does not let it fuck it up for her. Her breaths are as deep and slow as those with which gods animate universes. Still, says Beeblacks, continuing a conversation it and every iteration of Arya had been having since like forever. Like, even if the right glop is out there for me, how am I supposed to know? Am I supposed to become better for them? Or am I supposed to stay the same forever so they can recognize me? If we merge into a single perfect being, will I still be able to hang out with the homies and eat breakfast for dinner? Or will I have to eat brunch? I hate brunch. 
Brunch is like someone turned eating into a job. I just want to eat breakfast in my underwear. Biblax does not speak so much as psychically harmonize with the vibrations of Arya's soul. It tickles a little, spiritually speaking. But Arya is giving Biblax serious counsel here, so she keeps her soul from laughing. But that's the dream, though, right? She says, thinks. To find someone with whom to share underwear times? Both casual and saucy? That's what they say. Biblax psychically harmonizes. But there's more to life than kissy-face bullshit. Every moment I spent with some glop doing the same old whatever is a moment disappeared into universal nothingness. I'll never get those possible experiences back, right? So even if I'm the happiest I could be, I am still limiting my potentiality. But then again, when it's over, I feel terrible. Aren't you a fifth-dimensional cosmic constant? Is lost time really an issue? I'm dumbing it down for you. I feel like we're having some good real talk, and I don't want to glop it up with a lecture on the nature of the universe and or my existence that would goop up your mind hole. I don't eat brunch either. That's just some shit I stole out of your brain to convey meaning in absence of a shared reference point. Just go with a metaphor. That's cool. I'm just saying. I think you're overthinking it. You gotta just let these things happen. I know. I know everything. It's just hard sometimes. The glop of life is long and boring. Sometimes another bee blacks will glide over to them, and Arya will see one of her other selves up close. They are mostly all the same, differentiated mainly by affectations, clothes and hair and a few years given or taken. And Arya wonders if the other Aryas are on the same mission as she is in their universes, or if they are just kicking it with B-Blacks, just for whatevs. B-Blacks is a cool bro, if a little needy, and also the easiest way to travel across galaxies on the cheap. And she would not mind just chilling with him for a minute, especially if it meant not having to do the stuff she is supposed to be doing, her job or whatever. She wonders if the other hers are as feelingsy about the whole thing as she is, or if her emotionality is unique, the defining characteristic of herself and thus her universe. And then she thinks of Zarzak, watches it dancing in her mind, feels a warmth in her chest, sighs. She is unable to get the Zarzak thought out of her mind, and she finds herself unable to discern the goodness or badness of the thought. She can only experience it, watch the image in her mind's eye, and feel the sensations rippling inside her. And even though she knows it is some space bullshit, it is pleasant. Oh, B-Blacks, tell me where is fancy bread, or in the heart or in the head? I get that reference. I get all references. My knowledge of references is absolute. But there exist none who can swim in the reference pool of B-Blacks. So, like, what's the point of anything? I kind of wanted to talk about my thing, but whatever, I guess. Just chill. You're dope as hell, B-Blacks. I'm sure you'll find someone you can glop with. That's not what glop means, even in transconception. Okay, B-Blacks, okay. I'm kind of just dealing with some stuff right now, and it's messing me up in ways beyond your reckoning. It's okay, I get it. It's cool. The rest of the trip is quiet and kind of weird. At an appointed moment known only to B-Blacks, it, they, spits Arya out into the cosmos without saying goodbye. She is submerged in impossible geometries and unthinkable colors, as her mind struggles to readjust to her native Umwelt. It's not that cool, though, so she doesn't really think about it. Soon enough, her particles begin to resonate at familiar frequencies, and the universe coheres, and she sees points of light whizzing past her, stars and planets and other space shit, as she flies through the darkness. A thin layer of bee-blacks clings to her skin, which is mad gross, but... Also, it keeps her from dying. She sees the cosmic being known as the Drowning King in the distance, arms flailing, body shaking, desperately clawing at the vast emptiness of eternity. No one knows how long the Drowning King has been drowning. 
He has maybe existed since forever, unable to breathe, unable to die, or perhaps dying very, very, very slowly. As she comes closer, his figure grows larger and larger until her field of vision is completely filled with him. The jelly begins to burn as she enters his atmosphere, and wreathed in golden jelly flames, she pretends that she is a phoenix. She lands on a crystal at the center of his crown, a diamond as expansive as an ocean. The jelly absorbs the impact of her landing, then sloughs off, and she notices a bulge in her pocket that was not there before. She finds a personal cassette player and cassette tape wrapped in a note. I'm not supposed to do stuff like this, but take this. It is the most perfect mixtape that could ever exist. Sorry for being a glop. Sincerely, B-Blacks. The label on the cassette tape says, Nothing adds up in block letters. The note bursts into sparks after she reads it, and Arya rolls her eyes before putting the tape and personal cassette player in her bag. She draws the sister ray, which is a cool space gun she stole from an uncool science bro who had mastered manipulation of matter but had not mastered avoiding punches to his face, and sets it to naviform mode, and fires on the ground beneath, intending to make use of some of that good, good carbon. The material slowly rises up and begins to rearrange on an atomic level, slowly taking the shape of a vehicle. Arya uses the jet bike setting, as that is the dopest way of traveling across ancient planet-sized alien gods, no doubt. There are petals floating in the breeze, dozens of hundreds of them caught in the star-sweet exhalations of the drowning king. Arya reaches out with her left hand to catch them as she flies, and when she catches one, she gives herself a point. When she has twenty points, she turns up the speed of her jet bike a little more. Already she has accelerated past safety and reason, and she flies so fast now that the landscape is rendered into a blurry approximation of impressionist watercolors behind her. She can only just make out the petals before they are between her fingers, and it is increasingly difficult to distinguish reflex and intuition. This difficulty is pleasant to her, and she thinks that soon there will be no difficulty at all, only motion and that she will lose herself in velvety self-abnegation, make herself into an animated koan. But when her hand is so full of petals that she can no longer snatch them from the air, she opens her palm and allows them all to drift away, and she watches them flutter in the corner of her eye, feels the procession of silken tingles on her skin, pretends that the petals are emerging from inside. In these moments... She thinks that she might, in retrospect, forgive the universe for everything. The drowning king's eyebrow is a sort of strange forest, dense with life forms, speciated somewhere between plant and fungi, clinging to massive hairs extending upwards past visibility. Arya has been riding for days now, and the scenery is a pleasant change from the vast empty wastes of his starlit forehead. She could have taken a more direct route, but she has always been a romantic by nature, unable to resist the magic of the scenic route. She thinks of Zarzak again and feels a delicious shiver, and then she tries very much not to think of Zarzak, which is extremely difficult. Zarzak is wonderful, wondrous. Everything you could want and more. To not think of Zarzak is to not think at all. This is how the universe works now. A cramp hits her stomach, and soon the pain is overwhelming. She pulls over next to a web of fuzz and blue-green slime protruding from one of the drowning king's hairs. She expels a throbbing lump of semi-solid pink from the hurt in her belly. The frequency of its vibrations begin to intensify so as to harmonize with the neural oscillations of Arya's thoughts, and having locked into a perfect fifth, the lump begins to expand taking on a human figure, though still cast in pink stickiness. Agent Arya, it buzzes. This is Quark 4, transmitting from Star Station, Emeraud. Do you read me? The pink cannot distinguish signal from noise, and the simulacrum continuously shakes, swirls, melts. 
quark force features getting lost and found again in the tessellating flutters of after image and static. Was quark angry? Worried? Sad? The voice betrayed nothing, and the face was chaos. Agent Arya, it says. What is your status? Report immediately. Arya runs her fingers along its shifting edges, tracing Quark as she remembers her, her lines, her angles, her smile. Arya was real tight with Quark Three, who was super chill and great at kissing or whatever, but Quark Four is an asshole, super serious and unsympathetic, and kind of weird on social stuff. I'm here, says Arya. Everything's cool. Just Arya, please. Status report? I'm on my way. Maybe a couple more days to the eye. Seventy percent of known galaxies have succumbed to the Zarzak contagion. Within days it will have expanded to the edge of the universe. All other agents have been lost. You are our only hope. Yeah, that's cool. But to be super clear here, I am not an agent. Slave seems like a really harsh word, but I don't really want to use it because of some historical stuff on my home planet and my whole ethno-racial deal that you probably don't know about. But you have to really chill on the agent talk. Agent Arya, you have one week to save the universe. Quark freezes on the last word. Her image is still deformed by time and distance. But the face is stuck in pleading expression, mouth open, wide eyes, eyebrows arched along a sentimental curvature. Arya puts her finger in the nose. It's not super hilarious, but it is sort of funny. The image deflates into a little pink ball and Arya stores it back in her tummy hole before setting it off again. As she rides, she thinks about how Zarzak has almost certainly spread to Earth, which means that everyone she has ever known has been affected. It's funny to imagine the people she knew in her old life in love with a weird space monster. Derek, who broke up with her for being, like, weirdly volatile about dumb stuff, is now in love with a space monster. Her ex-roommates, Angie and Diane, who used to order pizza without telling her and secretly eating the pizza in Angie's room without telling Arya or asking if she wanted in, are now in love with a space monster. Funny, right? But then she thinks about her mom and her sisters and her middle school history teacher, Mr. Jacobs, and all the people she knew who were kind and of goodwill. And she feels sad for them, but also kind of happy for them, too, because Zarzak is actually pretty amazing. Arya decides to take a cigarette break at the edge of the drowning king's eye, stopping next to a colossal metal structure which she hypothesizes is keeping the eyelid open. Balancing the sister ray in the crook of her right arm and leaning against her jet bike, Arya rolls a paper and some purple flakes into a cigarette. She puts it in her mouth and lights it with the tip of the sister ray. Space cigarettes are nicotineless garbage, but they're better than nothing. She closes her eyes and takes a long drag and holds it as long as she can. And her lungs hurt pleasantly, like they have been out in the summer sun too long. She puts on the headphones and plays B. Black's mixtape. It is mostly alien music, arrhythmic and atonal and difficult to listen to, and the cassette quality is not great. She gives it a chance for a few songs, but it is too terrible for her to bear, and she turns it off before the fourth song can begin. Her eyes are full of smoke when she opens them, and when it clears, she notices there is a brain cube lurking across the way, on the edge of a canyonesque pore. Fuck, she says. The brain cube is eight feet by eight feet by eight feet of wrinkly pink meat. It slides along the ground slowly, greasily, with a sound like an inverted burp. Arya rushes to her feet, but it is too late. Already she can feel the brain cube's poisonous thought waves in her mind. Nausea, pain, ennui, Weltschmerz, anomie, heartbreak, loneliness, all at once. Arya points the sister ray at the brain cube, she says. But then she realizes she is saying that she is pointing the sister ray at the brain cube rather than actually doing it. This is probably an effect of the toxic psychoradiation she is being bombarded with. Fuck you, brain cube. 
It shambles ever closer, so close now that Arya's nostrils burn with the stink of sparked neurons and putrid glial residues. Arya tries to once again distinguish between saying things and doing things, but it is difficult. She thinks this might be interesting from a philosophical perspective, but she is probably going to die too quickly to really get into it. The brain cube is the worst of all possible cubes. Drops of fear sweat collect on her forehead and glisten in the starlight. She struggles to move her feet. They do not move. She is desperate. She has to do something if she is not to be brain cubed. She tries to think with the part of her brain that is not a brain but is actually a robot. She thinks she might be getting the hang of it again, but she is not sure if she has yet or if she ever had it at all. The anomie is not helping. Then at the last possible moment, Arya leaps back. The brain cube is still up in her business, but there is room now for reprisal. She crouches and points the sister ray. She goes down, down right, right, punch. This would cause her to shoot her ray gun if this were a video game, but this is not a video game. It is real life. Again, toxic psychoradiation is some bullshit. God damn it, she says before adding, there is no God. We are all nothing in a sea of nothing. The emotional pain is unbearable. Arya can barely remain conscious. Baring its teeth, the bear cube rotates such that its mighty clawed corner comes down on Arya's face, adding physical pain to the mix. Blood pours from the wound, spraying Arya's shirt and the nearest side of the bear cube. The bear cube does not stop. It is relentless without mercy. It spins around and around murderously. And when it has cut her through, it rolls itself on top of her body. She reaches out with her left hand to push it away, and the pain she experiences is as if she has plunged her hand directly into a star. Teeth tear and shred and gnash at her fingers. She tries to pull her hand away, but she is weak from pain and blood loss, and also the bear cube is a real motherfucker. She cannot escape. She cannot breathe. This is it. This is the end. She can only look into the wall of fur and listen to the crackle of bones and... Wait. There is not supposed to be blood inside of her. The fluids inside her are purple and viscous and cold. Nor does she need to breathe. Like, it's a cool thing to do when you want to smell stuff, but it's not necessary for her survival. Plus, wasn't it a brain or something a minute ago? Nothing about this is adding up. Wait. Her fingers struggle to find the walkman at her waist. They will not remain steady. They tremble, like she is telling a scary story or doing a magic trick. But they soon find their quarry. She presses play. Almost. The bear cube shifts just as her index finger is on the button, pinning her hand down under its weight. The bear cube is everywhere and everything, and the world is going dark. She thinks she may be slipping in and out of consciousness, but it is difficult to tell. Was she unconscious just now, or did she just blink? Does it matter? She cannot see anything anymore. It is not darkness. Darkness is a thing. She sees nothing. The void. The end. Fuck everything, she whispers. She can't die here. She summons all her remaining Arianus and tries to pull her hand from under the bear cube. It does not move. Too much weight on it. Then, redoubling her Arianus and trying her very best to scream, she tries to wrench her other hand free of the bear cube's clutches. The intact pieces of meat and bone are stuck in the bear cube's teeth, and it does not want to let go. It bites down harder. Arya pulls... This is not a pleasant experience. When she is finished, she reaches over with a stump and slams it against the buttons on the Walkman, again and again. And then there is music. An earth song. Disco. A girl singing a song about lust over trippy synthesizers and trembling static. The brain cube is across the way, and Arya is not dying or dead. Awesome. The sister ray is still pointed at it. The music blasts in her ears, and she can no longer feel the brain cube in her mind. 
She is about to pull the trigger, but she sees that the brain cube is shaking slightly. She does not know if this is a natural part of the brain cube's biology or if the brain cube is experiencing fear. She lowers her ray gun slightly. What's your deal? she asks. There is a long wait. Then Arya imagines Zarzak and the brain cube dancing together. The thought is gentle, fleeting, and at first she thinks it is just a stray imagining. But then there is another image of Zarzak and the brain together, and then another. And Arya sees the brain cube in her mind's eye, smaller now, alone amongst an array of bizarre xenostructures. A park, maybe? A playground? And Arya sees the brain cube alone, covered in purple slime, surrounded by other brain cubes in groups of three to five, also covered in slime. She sees a ship, hears an explosion, feels the sickly squeeze of hyperspace in her gut, all punctuated by images of Zarzak. But then disaster. The ship crashes, and the brain cube is alone again, its brain body bloodied, its transport reduced to rubble. In the end, the image of Zarzak is flashed over and over again. Zarzak, 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 Zarzak. Okay, I get it! The image fades. Arya stomps her cigarette out and gets on her jet bike. Later, she says. Before she can go, she is bombarded by images of the brain cube dying, starving, murdered, dead. A stack of brain cubes teetering mournfully on brain cube planet. The sound of silence. Arya looks back at the trembling cube. What do you want? Zarzak, 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 Zarzak. Stop doing that! A small, simple ship flying up and away from the drowning king, escaping homeward. Arya sighs. Fuck you, she says. But she straps the brain cube to the back of the jet bike. It is very awkward. She does not like the squishy feeling of the brain cube pushing on her back and its size and shape completely mess up her aerodynamics and balance. We're not friends, she says, as they begin the journey across the eye. Arya starts noticing them just after passing from sclera to iris. First a single drivel lying on the surface of the eye, bleeding cloud stuff from a wound at its side. Unable to speak its language, she seals its wound with a sister ray and goes about her business. Then there is a bruised cetarian limping toward the pupil. Arya approaches to offer aid, but the cetarian yells at her with all its mouths and is way uncool, so she bounces. She sees more and more life forms as she travels, some a familiar species, some entirely new to her, each one traveling alone. Many are injured, but all those that are conscious persevere. This is unexpected. To the extent that there exists mutually understood enforceable law across galaxies, visiting the drowning king is a super serious offense, as it is generally agreed across culture and species that fucking around with ancient space gods is not a good idea. Nobody wants to awaken anything that's going to take over, destroy everything. Better to just leave shit alone. Arya had expected to see a few desperate types hanging out possibly sent by their own planets to deal with this shit, but she had not anticipated seeing this surfeit of weirdos. The brawl starts around the pupil, just as the spire of Zarzak comes into view. Holy fuck, Arya says. It extends for miles, and there are far too many participants to count. Millions, at least. Aliens of all kinds, Wondrous creatures with strange physiology and technology unknown on Arya's side of the universe. And all of them are going fucking ham. They punch each other with fists as large as boulders, choke each other with dripping tentacles, fly into the air and fire mind lasers, pilot shiny death robots and mechanized animal hybrids, sing songs that melt bones, etc. The fighting appears indiscriminate. There are no sides, no rules just violence. There are screams of all sorts, pain, anger, fear, but Arya is capable of making out only one word, Zarzak. 
These are the fuckboys of Zarzak, the obsessive, the stalkers, the jealous assholes. Most life-forms are content to keep Zarzak in their heart, quietly nursing a sweet, peaceful love that is patient and kind and crosses time and space without envy or anger. But these motherfuckers are clearly not keeping it together, and Arya is unsure how to proceed. She sees herself blasting the shit out of all of them with the sister ray, and for a moment she is unsure if it is her own thought or the brain cubes. I told you to stop doing that. It's not cool. Anyway, we need the power of chill vibes, not aggro shit, says Arya. But she allows herself to imagine blasting the shit out of all of them with the sister ray. But she allows herself to imagine blasting the shit out of all of them with the sister ray. It is a pleasant thought especially with the knowledge that these people are all jerks, perverting all that is beautiful and awesome about Zarzak, and she hopes that the brain cube did not hear her think that. She puts B. Blacks's mixtape on again, hoping there might be a song with the power of chill vibes on it. But no, just more alien noise. I guess we do this the hard way. Arya revs the jet bike and drives straight into the crowd weaving through the combatants, dodging their attempts on her and each other. The ungainliness of the brain cube is initially a hindrance, bringing her within a hair's breadth of getting decapitated by a giant psycho mantis, and then burned by a living explosion, and then brought asymptomatically close to absolute zero by a slug guy. But soon enough, she settles into a rhythm and she realizes that the fighting is not quite as indiscriminate as she first thought. There are some conventions, some strategy. The fuckboys are trying to approach the spire while also trying to keep all other fuckboys away from the spire. Given the choice, most will focus their efforts more on preventing those behind them from progressing than impeding those already ahead of them. They all seem very angry that Arya is effectively cutting the line, but none of them do anything to stop her once she is passed. It takes about a day to get through it all. The base of the spire is a great machine drilling into the eye of the drowning king. There are many fuckboys here, and these ones seem extra rowdy, but there is also a golden robot calmly sitting on a long series of steps leading to the entrance, not fighting anyone. This is a surprise to Arya, as she had begun to forget that it was even possible to not be engaged in 24-7 fisticuffs. The fuckboys mostly ignore the robot and the area immediately surrounding it. None follow Arya when she approaches it. Madness, says the robot when it sees her. They have forgotten why they even started this journey in the first place. You speak English, says Arya. I am familiar with all the languages of this arm of the universe, and my subroutines generate probable languages at a rate of one million per cycle. You are a human of Earth, yes? Basically. I'm from there, anyway. Yes, this truly is madness. All wish to enter this spire, yet none will deign to allow another entry. Their minds are clouded with a foolish passion. Yeah. That's kind of why I'm here. The robot stands. I am T-A-R-C-T-I-L, the tactical assault robot created to increase love. I was designed to ensure the continued existence of love in this universe. Yet I will never love or be loved myself. Oh, cool. My name is Arya. That's not my real name, but I just sort of go by that now. Acceptable. So, um, are you with Zarzak? Or are you just chilling, or what? I have no formal affiliation with the being known as Zarzak, and I lack the capacity to experience the love of Zarzak as other sentients do. I am here of my own accord to guard the gates of this spire and stop those who might interfere with Zarzak. And why is that? I exist only for the propagation of love, and Zarzak is the fulfillment of love. What? No. That doesn't make any sense. That's dumb. 
All the universe now knows love. This is the fulfillment of love, the ultimate form of love, a love that enmeshes all. I mean, Zarzak's cool and all, but that's not what love is. Being forced to love a weird space monster is not love. Zarzak forces nothing. Zarzak asks nothing of those who love it. Zarzak plants the seed and allows it to flower. Does one ever choose to love? Love is always an imposition by fate and biology. It's still not real. What makes love real? If there is no difference between the thing and its simulacrum, then both are as real as the other. It's creepy and wrong. It's in my head, in everybody's head. Zarzak provides only warm feelings toward an abstraction. All may exist as they are, only with love in their hearts. Uninterested in pursuing this line of inquiry further, Arya sighs and reaches for the sister ray. Before she can even touch it, T-A-R-C-T-I-L grasps her wrist. Its grip is painful and unyielding. With its other hand, it holds a glowing laser pistol to her head. I do not wish to harm you, Arya, but I will do what I must. I am armed with the most advanced weaponry in the universe. I am trained in every martial practice. None can stand against T-A-R-C-T-I-L when love is on the line. Arya raises her arms. It's cool. I'm chill. I get it. T-A-R-C-T-I-L lets her go, but keeps its weapon trained on her. If you wish to continue our discourse, I would allow it. If not, I will ask you to leave this place. Arya nods, sits down, and begins talking. She tries to convince T-A-R-C-T-I-L that it is wrong. The task is next to impossible. Arya marshals every ounce of rhetorical ability within her, but is essentially only able to restate her core premises, i.e. that love of Zarzak is a violation of consent, and that love created through artifice is both qualitatively distinct from and materially inferior to that love which might be called natural. Each of her arguments is met with a dozen counter-arguments. Every premise is found contradictory. Every conclusion is found wanting. T-A-R-C-T-I-L weaves a web of rhetorical bullshit the likes of which Arya has never witnessed before. All the classical methods fail, Socratic, Hegelian, getting angry and saying a bunch of swears. There is no dialectic, no synthesis. We are at sophistry level infinity. The brain cube manages to tumble off the jet bike and squish over. Its awkward interjections of imagery and thought do little to progress the discourse, but Arya is able to find some comfort leaning against it as the hours and then days go by. Three whole days, at first filled with conversation, then mostly silent, as Arya can only occasionally summon a useful thought or concept. She goes so far as to engage T-A-R-C-T-I-L on the nature of robotic epistemology and cyber-existentialism, attempting to leverage her own status as a cyborg to get into the nature of free will and emotion and materialism. She even throws in a few logical paradoxes. No dice. T-A-R-C-T-I-L is unmoved. Arya and the Brain Cube start playing a mental game on the second day, something from the Cube's home planet. It is kind of like backgammon, but obscenely complex, and part of the game is thinking about the move you are going to make, which is different than thinking to make the move. After a full day of getting trounced, she feels that she is very close to winning, which doesn't matter because this game is dumb, but then she loses again, and she imagines herself flipping over the board in anger. And she realizes she is now truly into this game for real, as the pleasure of winning is dwarfed by the pain of defeat, and this sparks an epiphany. Hey, robot. I am T-A-R-C-T-I-L. Yeah, I know. I was just thinking... Isn't the very fact that I don't believe this love is real a sign that this love is unfulfilled and imperfect? It is common for sentients to not understand that the emotions they experience are love. 
Yeah, super common. Still imperfect. If your goal is the fulfillment of love, then shouldn't the universal knowledge of it be its ultimate form? Perhaps. And you know, I think there's only one way peeps know for sure that the love they had was definitely, definitely real. And that is, take it away. Maybe you're in love, maybe you're not. It's hard to say in the moment. But then when it's gone, you can really feel it. Like somebody cut off an arm. Like somebody cut out your soul. Like somebody cut out your brain and put it in a space robot body. If you're right, and the love is real, if I go in there and stop it, everyone will know what's up, that they experienced the truest, realest love possible. How is that not perfect? Calculating. Please stand by. T-A-R-C-T-I-L just stands there for a while, frozen. And Arya is like, whatever. She thought it was kind of a dumb argument, but it's cool that it worked. She tells the brain cube to wait here. She gets the zarzak, 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 zarzak from it again. But she is firm. She tells the brain cube to stay safe and make good decisions. And she gives it a little hug despite herself. She waves her hand in front of T-A-R-C-T-I-L's eyes a few times to be sure. And then she enters the spire. Zarzak is on a rotating pillar in the center of a small red room at the top of the tower. The pillar throbs with strange humming energy, presumably plumbed from within the drowning king. Zarzak dances, fluid and shapeless, smoothly mimicking shapes as it flows across the pillar. Arya has the sister ray pointed at Zarzak, but she cannot pull the trigger. Not because she loves Zarzak, no, definitely not that, but because she feels there should be more to it than this. More than just another moment. She has been dicking around on this mission for like two weeks, and she deserves a little drama, a little acknowledgement. She wants to be witnessed. She fires a warning shot and waves. Hey, hello, over here. I am Arya. I am from a planet called Earth. We have lots of cool things there, like, um, cats, and phones that have games on them. Chess, democracy, samosas. The French New Wave, pirates, uh, TV on the radio, and uh, TVs and radios. I mean, I haven't been back in a while. It's complicated. I'm not really human or whatever anymore. I'm still trying to work out a good portmanteau. Starborg, Robogal, something like that, but not dumb. Anyway, I am here on behalf of the Star Syndicate to fuck you up. Zarzak says nothing but shapes itself into an abstract humanoid form, a ball floating above fleshy curves, and it dances. Arya comes closer. Who are you? Why are you doing this? Zarzak dances. Arya tries to read the movements, tries to see an unctuous smirk and a cackle and a speech about being the most desired being in the universe, or a pathetic snivel about wanting to be loved, or a noble yet misguided diatribe on the mind-killing evils of loneliness. Something. Anything. But no. Zarzak just dances. Beautifully. Arya does not know who built this place. If it was Zarzak or someone else. If Zarzak is conqueror or prisoner, monster or victim. She comes closer and closer. It is said that the Sister Ray can kill gods. It is ancient and unknowable, like everything that matters. She points it at Zarzak, and Zarzak dances. This sucks, she says. She is going to pull the trigger, totally, in just a second. Just a second. It is very pleasant being here right now. Arya feels clean inside. Not happy, exactly, but clean, or maybe healed, and it is a nice sensation, again pleasant. Why not linger a while? It's not like there's exactly a time limit. Well, Quark said there was a time limit, but Quark is a doofus. No one ever got hurt by just hanging out, just for a minute. Arya begins to dance. It's fun. 
she offers Zarzak the sister ray. It slides a protrusion toward her and takes the sister ray. Arya keeps dancing. She thinks it was probably a mistake to do that just now, and she thinks that she probably should have just shot it. She has never been good at just shooting things. She is too sentimental, too much of a romantic, too inclined toward forgiveness and nonviolent talky times. The Zarzak contagion is definitely way stronger up close, and she wishes she had considered that in advance. Zarzak points the weapon at Arya. Shit. So you're like... Definitely a bad guy, huh? Not even a cool bad guy. Just a dick. Arya wants to think of a cool thought before she dies, but she can't really think of anything but how great Zarzak is. Bummer. But before she can be murdered, the doors of the spire fly open and T-A-R-C-T-I-L appears, covered in weapons, laser cannons and glow swords and particle whips extending from compartments all over its body. It charges them, and Arya is unsure which one it is after. Zarzak does not seem to care either way. It fires wildly, dance-dodging an incoming volley of ultra-missiles and laser spray. Arya does not dodge, but somehow manages to avoid getting hit. In the confusion, she leaps forward and reaches out for the sister ray. There is a quick tug of war, but Zarzak doesn't even have real muscles. She takes the weapon and aims. You suck, dude. Like, really. And she fires. Zarzak is hit directly, and Arya holds the beam down on it, causing Zarzak to be rearranged on a quantum level. It is totally dope. She stands, dusts herself off. Already she can feel her mind getting right. Emotions are dumb, she decides. As a way-cool space cyborg... She should know better than to be seduced by a few warm fuzzies. She looks over to T-A-R-C-T-I-L, ready to continue the fight if necessary. It lies on the ground, bleeding from its left side. Wait. She puts on her headphones again and presses play, and she sees the brain cube there, missing many of its most important atoms. It didn't get a full blast, but even a taste of the sister ray is enough to fuck up one's shit. Arya rushes over to the dying cube, and she's like, why? And the memory rushes in Arya's mind. Arya sighs. Fuck you, she says, but she straps the brain cube to the back of the jet bike. It is very awkward. She does not like the squishy feeling of the brain cube pushing on her back, and its size and shape completely mess up her aerodynamics and balance. And the brain cube shows her all the times it was alone on brain cube planet again. And then it shows them traveling and hanging out and playing mind games. And then the brain cube dies. Zarzak's dance pillar begins to pulse, and the hum turns to a sickly screech. Without Zarzak doing whatever dumb thing he was doing, the equipment is freaking out. Or maybe the drowning king just wants to get all of this stupid shit out of his eye. Either way, Arya has a feeling shit is about to get real. She sighs. You're carbon-based, right? She sets the sister ray to naviform mode, and she forms the brain corpse into a little ship. Nothing special, just decent enough to get them out of Atmo. She really wishes she knew what the brain cube's actual name was, but she just names it the brain cube. It's sort of cute, she thinks. She gets into the brain cube and flies away just as the spire explodes. The universe is saved! Hooray! Great job. As the drowning king shrinks in the distance, Arya wonders idly if souls can attach to atoms, or if they are more of a molecular thing. She does not know the answer, but she likes the idea of it. Tell me, brain cube, where is fancy bread, or in the heart... Or in the head. It is engendered in the eyes, she thinks. And she does not know if she is thinking it herself, or if someone is thinking it for her, or if she is just thinking about someone thinking it for her because she is a big softy. Is this a kind of love, this inability to distinguish sentiment from sentimentality? 
Perhaps T-A-R-C-T-I-L's premise was wrong. Perhaps love already exists in infinite quantities all around us, subtly connecting us all together with little moments of affection and kindness, and not attached to freaky alien buttholes. Okay, we can be friends now, she says. Welcome back. You've been listening to Stefan Rudnicki performing Infinite Love Engine by Joseph Allen Hill. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or the social media venue of your choice. Our editor is John Joseph Adams. If you are not already a subscriber to our Hugo Award-winning magazine, check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Our sponsor this month is Tor Books. Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rutnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Be sure to check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by Jack Kincaid, and post-production for Lightspeed is in association with yours truly. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Lightspeed Magazine. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. We'll see you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund, wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.